It's the 14th of February, 2016, and this is episode 282. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey, everyone. And a special guest who needs no introduction, Gavin Andreessen. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show again, Gavin. So um, just to kind of jump right into it, uh, are you being restrained by a national security letter? If you're not, say banana. Wait, let me, I always have trouble with negatives. Uh if I am not, say, banana. Banana, I think okay. that's right, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, great. Terrific. All right. So it seems like you're probably not being restrained by a national security letter. So that's positive. All right. So the next question, when were you co-opted and why are you trying to destroy Bitcoin? <laughs> oh, my. Um, um, yeah, um, yeah, a couple of years ago, and yes, I've stopped beating my wife, I guess is the only appropriate answer to that. <laughs> so um, I, I took a look through some of the kind of discussion around Bitcoin Classic, which is why I asked you on the show to talk about this today. And it's nasty out there. <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. And you look in both camps, unfortunately, and there's a pretty hardcore line between people who think that Classic or something besides Core is a good idea and people who think that you know Core is what needs to be stuck with and hard forks are the devil. So obviously that's a uh, exaggeration of the position on both sides, but this is contentious and you, this is your second time now taking what I would put as kind of a catalyst role of pushing forward one of these things that a lot of the, the Bitcoin community really has pushed back against with the core developer certainly leading that charge. So can you talk about what Bitcoin Classic is and why it's something that you're willing to essentially sacrifice your reputation for? Sure. Uh, Bitcoin Classic uh, is a project that was actually started by a couple of miners who were tired of kind of Bitcoin core saying, yeah, we're going to change things eventually when we get around to it. So Jonathan Tuman and Marshall Long, Jonathan had done a bunch of testing with uh, raising the block limit on the testnet, testing through the Great Firewall of China to find out are there actually any problems with bigger blocks? Um, had some great test results he brought to the Hong Kong conference showing that certainly two megabyte blocks are safe. His testing showed that probably three or four megabyte blocks would start to become a problem if you kind of have the simplest possible mining setup where you're just announcing new blocks in their entirety and expecting them to make their way across the Great Firewall of China, which turns out is pretty flaky in terms of latency and bandwidth. So we've talked about this a couple of times before, and I don't want to get into details, but the problem with larger blocks from that side of the argument is that latency gives an advantage to people who have uh, greater uh, money to spend on infrastructure or resources, and that because of that, there are incentives to keep blocks small so that miners can maximize their chance of winning the blocks and not you know, find a block, but then have uh, somebody else also find it and they lose the latency race. Exactly, yeah. It depends on who you ask as to which argument you get and how, how technically sophisticated an argument you get. I think there are some bad arguments that, you know, small miners can't afford good internet connections. I think those are bad arguments because it's easy to buy a really great internet connection for not much money a month. And, you know, even a 1% miner 
If you talk to the miners, that's not the issue for them. It really isn't. It's the worry that right now we have, I don't know, 60, 70. I, I haven't looked at the latest stats, but a, a good chunk of the network is behind the Great Firewall of China. And so if you're on the wrong side of that firewall, then you are at a disadvantage. And, and you know, the right side to be on is the side with the, the majority of hashing power. And if it takes your blocks longer to get to the majority of hashing power, then they're more likely to be orphaned. And that, that's really the, the, the big worry with miners in, in increasing the block limit without doing technical work to, to fix that problem. And, and I'm sympathetic to that, right? That's, that's a good argument. A part of me wants to say to the miners, this is open source software, go fix it right? It's not the developer's job to fix that problem for you. And to be fair, they have fixed it. A bunch of the miners are, are doing what's called validationless mining. So they, they will see a block header, 80 bytes with valid proof of work, and then they just jump on it and start mining it immediately. And getting 80 bytes around the internet is really fast. I mean, even through the Great Firewall of China, that, that's not a problem. How does that work? Can you tell us a little more about that? So a miner finds a block, um, and then the other miners, through various tricky means, <laughs> will find out that they found a block. But what are the tricky means? Is it something you could explain in a way that like, someone like me could understand who doesn't have a super technical computer science background? I can try. Maybe Andreas could help me out if I, if I dive too far into the weeds. Normally, miners are connected to a mining pool, and if you're connected to a mining pool, you get little chunks of work to work on. And those chunks of work aren't the full block. You're not given the full block to work on. You're given the block header, the 80-byte block header, um, or maybe a few 80-byte block headers. And then you, you tweak a number in the block header. That's the nonce, right? To try to find a solution that makes that block header hash to a low enough number so that you win the block race for the mining pool. If I'm a miner and I want to, and, and some, there's some big mining pool and I want to know as quickly as possible, did they find a new block? The easiest way to do that is for me to connect to that mining pool as if I'm just yet another miner and watch the, the work that I'm given. And as soon as there's a new, that mining pool finds a new block, it gives out new work to all of the miners in the pool. And so in this way, if the other miners can see as quickly as possible that by directly connecting to other pools, whether the pool has found a new block. They don't know what the block is yet. They just know that mining pool has given its miners new work to work on because it found a block. And, so, and that new work has the previous block header in it. So you could therefore extrapolate what the previous winning block header was. Exactly. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And then this, this pool that sees that and they say, oh, they found a new block. I'm going to assume that the block is valid. Why would miners build work on top of invalid blocks? And so I will build, start building on it too. I will give all my miners new work. The new work that I give my new miners will be an empty block because I don't know what transactions were actually in that block. All I have is the block header. And in that way, I can, I can minimize the chances that it takes a long time for the, for the actual block to get to me. It might take me a long time to validate it. And I can minimize my orphan rate that way. And so that's the way validationless mining is working for a bunch of miners. It has a built-in disincentive, though, which is that sometimes the block you think was valid wasn't. And we saw that play out very effectively during the BIP66 soft fork. A right. lot of these validationless miners fell on their face and lost their reward because the previous block they'd guessed on 
wasn't a good guess. I was just about to ask, why doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> but that answers that question. It does answer that question. And that's that's a risk reward thing, right? I mean, if you can trust that you won't get invalid blocks, then it may be worth taking that risk. And the miners have made the decision that that's a risk they're willing to take. Um, and I'm actually very respectful of miners and and respectful that they know what is best for their business and that they're able to make those risk reward calculations intelligently and i think they are that's that's bitcoin working as it's supposed to be right which is everyone pursuing their own personal interests independently and the thing working through game theory exactly yes and i mean you know certainly the exchanges won't accept valid blocks right (laughs) and they didn't with bip 66 so the miners had to do some work to uh produce an actual valid chain with bitcoins that exchanges and everybody else in the ecosystem would accept and again, I think that I think Andrew is exactly right. This is Bitcoin working the way it's supposed to work. The miners came up with this optimization. They didn't implement it quite correctly. In the case of BIP66, it turns out if they didn't have a bug in their code, <laughs> it would have been pretty easy for them to do the right thing and, and not build an invalid chain. They've been punished for it a little bit. Those blocks that they created aren't in the chain. And you know, it's up to them whether they want to spend the money on the engineering effort of you know, fixing more bugs that they might have in there or not. I mean, they may make the rational decision that's just not worth it for them. They'll live with those bugs. So wait a minute. Exactly. Can we just go back? What is exactly BIP66? Does it enable verificationless mining? No, BIP66 was was kind of the trigger for the bug. BIP66 was check lock time verify. Am I getting that right, Andreas? My My memory for these things is infamously bad. I th- I think BIP66 was actually the strict DR, DR encoding of signatures that preceded check lock time verifying. Got it. So it was it was a completely unrelated soft fork that was just in flight at that time, and it was the catalyst for exposing validationless mining by tripping up the miners who weren't exactly. Validated. I mean, the rule was oh, okay. the rule that came into effect was I think block version. Three will no longer be accepted. You must be mining block version four. And again, I'm probably getting that detail wrong. Yeah. And so what they did was they they validated blocks that actually had signatures that were not strict DER encoded, which because 66 had then activated were at that point invalid and they weren't doing the checks. So they mined a block that was valid in their eyes, but for everyone else who had accepted the BIP66 election and had turned to enforcing 66, they basically, um, discarded those blocks as invalid because they had invalid signatures within them. So it was a tightening up of the signature rules. And there was incentives to do verificationless mining in China? Is that what you're saying? Because And there's a lot of mining in China, but there's also this internet problem? Yeah, the Chinese miners have been very concerned about driving down their orphan rates, driving down the rates at which they, you know, their blocks are not accepted by the network. And whether that's because there's more competition there, or whether that's because of the Great Firewall of China. Uh, I don't know. You know. We could speculate about that. But the, the, I mean, the simple fact is, you know, they were the ones who were, who were doing this. Um, I don't think it was a conspiracy. I don't think it was, I don't think it's bad. It sounds like just incentives. I, I think it is exactly just exactly. incentives, right? They had this problem of their blocks were getting orphaned as, as they got bigger, and they found a solution. And that solution I think a lot of the, the the developers were horrified when they heard what they were doing. 
And and the immediate kind of knee-jerk reaction was, you have to validate blocks. How can you not validate blocks? The whole system relies on you validating blocks. That's your it job. It sounds really important. <laughs> it does sound really important. And it is important that blocks get validated. It just turns out, I don't think it's as important for miners to do all of the validation right away as 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 people thought. Obviously, you know, Bitcoin continues to to function even though miners are doing this trick. And, and and part of the reason why it's okay is because the only way this works is if you're mining empty blocks on top of the non-validated blocks. So, you know, what we see in the blockchain is, you know, you'll see most of the time uh, you get blocks full of transactions. And then every once in a while, you'll see an empty block. Usually you see an empty block within, you know, found within 10 or 20 seconds or 30 seconds of the previous block. Right. And that's because miners are doing this validationless mining just for the 10 or 20 or 30 seconds or however long it takes blocks to propagate across the network and get to them and then for them to turn around and get through the whole mining software stack and then give new work to all of their, uh, to all of the miners that are working for them. Wow. A nice little analogy to this is the kind of strategy you see in, in, in motorsports, right? If you got a, a Formula One car and you're going to put it on the track, well, you, you can give it a full tank of gas and that means it won't have to do a pit stop very soon, but then it's going to be heavy. <laughs> um, so, so maybe some teams put like three quarters of a tank of gas and that means it can be faster for the next 20 laps, but then it has to take a 30 second stop to fill up again, whereas everybody else doesn't. And, and, you know, uh, maybe on rainy days, that works better than on dry days, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's really all of these competing strategies. I, I think in the end, what we saw is that once again, Bitcoin was resilient. It managed to correct automatically and dynamically for these little quirks in the system. It was. And, it, you know, it would be really bad if there was some opportunity for like double spending with this scheme. But since empty blocks are being mined... There are no transactions, so there is no opportunity for double spending. So it really, you know, doesn't cause a problem for anybody. It looks weird, and it doesn't even decrease the capacity of the network, which is really surprising. How does it not decrease the capacity? Because if more blocks are being mined sooner, basically, and they're empty, they don't have any transactions, then the sooner you get to the next halving... Right. And the miners get rewarded, but they've released a block that doesn't have any transactions in it, which doesn't really benefit the network. So at first blush, it seems like it would be bad. Right. But walk me through how it's not. <laughs> the way I think about it is, well, let's say miners were absolutely positively going to completely validate every block before they started working on top of it. You know, they get the block header and they know that somebody's found a new block. Pretty sure that it's correct. I have pretty good confidence that people aren't just going to mine invalid blocks because they will be rejected sooner or later. But let, let's say miners decided, you know, then we're not going to do this validationless mining. I mean, their only choice would be to like shut down their hashing power until they've done the work of receiving the block and validating it. So they would just shut down their hash power for 10, 20, 30, whatever seconds. Obviously, if the hash power is found, you're not going to find a new block in that time. So creating an empty block is kind of exactly the same situation as shutting down your hash power and just saying, wait, hold on a second, let's not burn any electricity while we do complete validation of this new block. I think the piece that's missing from this explanation, which may not be immediately obvious, is that 
while they're trying to mine an empty block for the 20 or 30 seconds um, as the other blocks transactions are filtering in and they get to validating it as soon as they have a full a fully validated block 10 20 seconds in now they know which transactions are out of the mempool and which transactions are candidates for the next block they're immediately going to switch to mining a full block so the the oh, different it doesn't okay. matter that they've wasted 30 seconds doing an empty block if they didn't find one because they immediately switch to doing a full block and then maybe they find a solution to that. It's just a matter of what do you do with a hash power for those 10, 20 seconds. Yeah, that's a much better explanation. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, basically, okay. you're a dispatcher at a bus depot and you, you basically, there's no one waiting at the stop. So do, do you leave too much of a gap b between buses and, and just launch it empty and, and just hope there's people waiting at the following stops? Or, or do you just have the bus sit around, but then you have a very big gap between buses? It's really all kinds of optimization techniques that go, come into this. And the, the beauty of it is that it all works without any coordination, simply by each person following their self-interest. Yeah, I mean, in the long term, I mean, we, we should fix this. And there, there are plans to fix this. So maybe we can get back on track here, because this, this has been fascinating discussion, but I don't know if it's what we started off talking about, right? So maybe <laughs> Yeah, we did get kind of deep in the technical weeds. Yeah, which I, that's fine. I mean, we like that. And I appreciate all these explanations because it helped me learn something too. But, but maybe we could go back to why we started talking about this in the first place, which was why. <laughs> yeah, you'd ask me, uh, what's classic all about? <laughs> and how does this relate to classic? So, so yeah, I was saying, you know, miners kind of started the classic project. They asked me if I would help out to implement a simple raise of the block size limit from one megabyte to two megabytes. And I, I said, sounds reasonable to me and I'd be happy to help out. And, and so I have been helping out to, to launch this project because Bitcoin Core, the end of last year, kind of the consensus going forward was there would be some compromise proposal for a hard fork to increase the, the block limit. And then Core kind of changed the roadmap in December after the Hong Kong meeting and said, well, no, we're going to do segregated witness as the short-term increase, which I like segregated witness, but I think it's a mistake to kind of put all our eggs in that one basket. I think it's a lot more complicated. It gives less scaling. And so I still think, you know, it's an urgent issue to address and that the simplest engineering solution is BIP 109. Uh, BIP 109 is the, the Bitcoin classic BIP that just proposes a pretty simple, well, very simple at the, at the consensus layer level, increase in the, the block size limit from one megabytes to two megabytes. That's why I have joined classic and have been helping them launch this new client that people can run. Well, I, I think from a different perspective, we could also look at this and say, okay, there's a lot more noise and furor and rage quits and public pronouncements. And now a lot of the media is writing all about the schism and death of Bitcoin, and that's very noisy. But in, in a very practical sense, since this discussion was started by you, Gavin, you know, eight months ago, I would say, approximately when you when you inject its emergency about the capacity issues into the discussion. The two opposing perspectives or opinions have come a hell of a lot closer together because now we're talking about the difference between a two megabyte hard fork first 
with segregated witness as well a bit later maybe what the sequence is not sure a course position has shifted to so it's now segregated witness now but also hard fork uh, also to 2 meg later with a change in the discounting mechanism segregated witness and some some more planning for that so it seems like both proposals have gotten a hell of a lot closer from where they were let's say in October, November, when XT was 8 meg and Core was no way, no how hard fork. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We're, we're haggling over much smaller differences now. And, and I mean, haggling's good. This is, I think, this, this debate, I actually see this debate as very healthy, an open democratic debate. And, and the fact that you can't so easily shift Bitcoin into supporting one opinion versus another without everybody's support is, is a good thing. But we're getting really a lot yeah, I, closer. I, I agree with that. And, and I think it's exactly, it's exactly right. I mean, I've been accused of kind of being dictator for Bitcoin, and it's obvious that I'm not, right? <laughs> I think this whole incident and the, 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 the trouble is healthy. It is good. Um, and it does show that, that Bitcoin really and truly is distributed, and it takes all the stakeholders to get together to agree to a change. W would you say that... Um it is likely at this point that by the end of 2016 or mid-2017 at the latest, we will have both segregated witness and a max block size at two, megabit, 2 megabytes or perhaps a slightly different number. I think that's likely. I think we're still in the middle of it. So, you know, there, there was a letter that came out signed by, I think it was a majority of hash power, kind of giving Core another three weeks to kind of put together a very detailed roadmap on exactly when and how the hard fork is going to happen. Oh, this was, uh, this was yesterday, and it was uh, actually, I think, mostly pool operators rather than hashing power this time. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, the debate is still raging. People are still wrestling, as you say, over the details, which makes me a little bit depressed. I mean, I don't know. It, it, it seems to be a much bigger deal to, to everybody else than, than it is to me because... I do think Bitcoin is very resilient, and I do think people are incentivized to do the right thing, and I think they will do the right thing in the end. Is Classic just about block size, or is there anything else? Because XT was mostly about block size, but there was other stuff. Right now, there. Classic is exactly just about the block size. That's all. It's, it's kind of a single, clean set of patches uh, that do nothing but implement BIP 109, which is the, the, the block limit increase with safety rails for a couple unlikely to happen attacks that could happen if you raise the block size without thinking about things really, really carefully. Is the plan to retain that kind of laser focus on this one issue and otherwise retain parity with core? Or do you think that classic could eventually like if there are other contentious issues, they might find their way into classic at some point? I know the classic team has been thinking pretty hard about replaced by fee and whether, you know, that will get removed from Classic as a feature, because that's a very controversial feature that's in core. Uh, that decision hasn't been made yet. It's not up to me. It's up to the you know, people who are involved in Classic. I should bump up and say, you know, that there's, a, there's this other issue that I've been talking about for a long time. And, and, and that's, I think Bitcoin really does need to evolve from being a single open source software project to being an honest to goodness internet protocol where there are multiple implementations and people get to choose which implementation they like best. This is the way the internet works, right? You don't have just one choice of web browser. You can choose Chrome or Internet Explorer. I wouldn't choose Internet Explorer if I were you. It's a dying project. But 
you have choices and and the bitcoin there there are parts of the bitcoin protocol that everybody has to agree on right there has to be consensus around the consensus rules but that's really no different from the internet where everybody has to agree on the low level ip protocols or or you don't interoperate and so as as bitcoin evolves and matures we need a decentralized development in addition to decentralizing everything else I've said I'm I'm contributing to multiple projects, right? I plan on continuing to contribute to Core. I I plan to contribute to Bitcoin Unlimited and Bitcoin XT and Bitcoin Classic because I do strongly feel that that there should be multiple implementations of the Bitcoin protocol. I think people should have choice. And I think it's natural for there to be an implementation of the Bitcoin protocol that's optimized for miners and one that's optimized for end users and maybe one that's optimized for running on Raspberry Pis and another that's optimized for merchants. You know, we see that in other protocols, you know, there's not a one size fits all solution. And I think part of the problem with Bitcoin Core is it's been trying to please all of these different constituencies with one piece of software. And I think that really hurts innovation. And I think that just makes things move very slowly. And, and frankly, I think it really frustrates developers who who may have you know, different priorities than you know, whatever the current priority is for the project. Or that could be exactly how Bitcoin's supposed to work. <laughs> that there should just be one piece of software that everybody runs? Well, no, like the, the idea that um, gridlock happens when people can't agree, but maybe that's okay because if it changes too fast, it might get away from what a Satoshi intended. You know, maybe that's an intentional feature, not a bug, that it's hard to make change. Consensus level changes I'd agree with, but for things like, you know, changes in the peer-to-peer protocol or changes to the user interface or, you know, these kinds of changes, uh, you know, I, I don't agree. I think that, you know, we need more diversity. I, um, ironically, the segregated witness feature, the script versioning, as well as uh, BIP9, which is for the uh, block version bit field. Those two innovations that are introduced in core or are being introduced in core actually opened the door for a lot of things that used to be hard consensus to be much, much uh, more malleable and allow for a lot of competing implementations as well as parallel upgrades from, from different developers. And that's part of the reason why I love SegWitness and those proposals. So yeah, I absolutely agree. We need to get there so that we can have more innovation happening all at the same time. I mean, sidechains also. Sidechains are, are a great place where you know, people could experiment with things. So, Gavin, you're arguing for multiple implementations, which I think that you'll get little argument uh, from any of us here about. But there's one thing that's kind of different between what you were talking about in terms of like uh, a Bitcoin that's better for merchants and a Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin client that's uh, better for another type of user. Um, none of those try to make the the one change that Classic is making, which is to increase the block size, which then creates a consensus issue where if someone chooses not to upgrade then they wind up on the wrong network as soon as a block larger than what their client is willing to accept. So it, are, is it really the same thing um, to have you know, a client difference you know, personalized towards one particular market? Uh, is that the same thing as what you're doing with Classic? Because it seems like it's not. Well, you know, the people who are, are most interested in raising the block size are you know, the big merchants, the big exchanges. Uh, and you, you saw that with the BIP 101 support. So, you know, this is a feature that they're very interested in, in having because it's good for their business and, you know, they see business being turned away because this issue isn't being addressed. It seems like 
these are basically incompatible. And that while if we're talking about, say, uh, you know, uh, Amir Taki's alternative implementation, Bitcoin in uh, Obelisk, uh, you know, compared to Core, in that case, somebody could run Obelisk ver and still be able to be on the same network as somebody running Core. But somebody running Classic with, you know, two megabyte blocks or blocks that are above the core limit would not be able to be on the same network as somebody running core. So are those the same thing really? Can you make that argument? No, it is two different issues. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, there is the issue of what are the consensus rules and how do we decide that? And, you know, the way we decide that right now is what do the majority of the miners do? And what do the majority of kind of the economic majority accept from the miners? So, you know, there's there's checks and balances there. But assuming that the economic majority and, and the miners agree, then, you know, that is the, the blockchain. The incentives are incredibly strong at that level for all the miners to agree with the, the economic majority on, on what the single blockchain is. And indeed, it seems like if, you know, if uh, Classic were to succeed in picking up adoption, so it looks like it's going to be the overwhelming favorite, then the two options miners would be faced with who hadn't yet switched would be to pressure Core to make themselves compatible with Classic or to switch to Classic or to stay on. And the third option, of course, is to stay on the now much smaller network. Yeah, I think, I think the option to stay on the much smaller network is not an option. I, I don't think any reasonable miner would decide to do that. So really at the core here, the argument is just that you think blocks need to be bigger and people who agree with you that blocks need to be bigger in the sooner rather than the later are in favor of something, whether it's XT or classic or whatever kind of the vehicle that delivers that outcome is. And if you're not in favor of it, then you're not going to be in favor of these things. So really, it's just about you know whether or not you think the Bitcoin protocol at this point should be used for settlement or should, I mean, like if we get back to that kind of core disagreement, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase phrased it as an election, right? We're holding an election right now and asking people to decide what do they want Bitcoin to be. And an election, you know, elections aren't crises. This should not be thought of as a crisis. And the system continues to work smoothly, even if the candidate that, you know, your favorite candidate does not get elected. And I think the, the analogy is actually pretty good in this case. I think Bitcoin will continue to work smoothly no matter what happens in this in this grand debate over the block size limit. Including the analogy that the followers of each candidate tell you that the world will end if the other one is elected. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> I don't know how many times I've had my very, very liberal friends tell me that if a Republican gets elected US president, that they're going to move to Canada. <laughs> and yet they're still here. Well, I have another question for you, Gavin, which may be a bit more technical, but it, it plays right to the heart of the current issues that, that are up for debate, and that is the timing. So I think a, a very big thinking point right now is, should SegWit happen first? Should a hard fork happen first? Is, it, you know, is, is a hard fork more complex and risky, or is SegWit more complex and risky? And there's a lot of differing opinions there. One thing I want to ask you about is there, there's a particular feature set in, in SegWit that, that's already been written up as a BIP that changes the way uh, SigHash is calculated to make it so that it's not uh, an exponential order operation that at the moment has created an opportunity for people to make transactions that are extremely hard to validate because they tax the system by creating an exponential order of hashing operations to validate its action. Uh, that's been a weakness. We've known about it for a while. 
SegWit aims to fix that. And one of the arguments that I've been hearing from Core, and I, I'd like your opinion on this, is that SegWit needs to happen first because if you increase the block size without fixing this order n squared problem of transaction validation, you make it much easier for people to create denial of service transactions. I, I know Classic has some countermeasures to that. What, what's your thought? My thought is exactly that Classic directly addresses that problem. So it puts limits on how much SIG hashing can be done. And those limits are, are, it's a little tricky, right? I mean, if we could go back in time and convince Satoshi to fix the way signatures are created, then you know, that would be ideal. We can't, so we have to live with all of the legacy hardware and software. And software, I'm not so worried about. It can be upgraded. But you know, we have all these hardware wallets that sign transactions. And I don't know how many of them have firmware that can be upgraded and how many of them don't. I'm, I'm guessing you know, my little Ledger wallet, I'm not sure I could upgrade the firmware in that thing. You, you can on, on Ledger, Trezor. So it, it may yeah, not be as bad as I think, but it's, it'd certainly be disruptive if you said you have to change the transaction signing mechanism. You don't want to do that overnight. Certainly, you want a transition period of you know, time for people to upgrade. If you happen to own a hardware wallet where the company went out of business and there are no more firm grades, you might be stuck and you certainly don't want to get your Bitcoins stuck, right? <laughs> that's, that's completely unacceptable. So you just have to be really careful about that kind of change. And I think we, we have to live with it. I don't know if the answer is forever or for years. And I mean, certainly Core is not proposing to change that, right? They're just proposing to keep the, the one megabyte block size with the traditional transactions on it and, and migrating towards SegWit transactions. And yeah, I completely agree with that. And we should do that over the long run. And that's one of the reasons I, I love segregated witness. But to say that we have to do that first, uh, I think is just wrong. You know, I think classic shows that we don't have to do that first. I've asked core developers in the past and, and made some fairly public statements about this and said in the core roadmap, there used to be a, a fairly weak position for a hard fork. And that's beginning to get a bit stronger, as in more commitment from core that there will be a hard fork for a block size increase eventually. And, and now there's some actual planning behind it, which, which seems quite promising. So um, I'd like to pose the same question to you. If uh, Classic were to succeed um, in doing a hard fork block size increase to two uh, megabytes, would you commit to contribute and bring into Classic the segregated witness features after that? Would I commit? I can't commit for the Classic project, <laughs> right? I mean, there's, yeah, I'm not lead developer for Classic. Sorry, I'm not using the, um, the term commit as in commit into the repository. I mean, would you personally want to work on bringing those changes uh, into Classic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think segregated witness is a great idea and it should happen. And yeah, any, and, and I would encourage any project to adopt those changes once they're stable. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other complaints that I uh, saw this morning from a very respected developer on the other side, uh, I was a little surprised to see is basically that Classic is by only addressing the block size issue and essentially just porting over the work being done by core into Classic, that somehow there's something wrong with that. And it struck me as odd because these projects are both open source, and I don't think you're hiding the fact that Bitcoin Classic is derived from Bitcoin Core. So, I mean, do you have any sort of response? How do you feel about the fact that most of Core is being, quote, co-opted into Classic? It's a strange attitude from an open source software developer, because the whole point of open source 
is if you don't like the direction a project is going in, you can take the source code and do what you want with it, right? You're not beholden, not like, a, you know, with a closed source where all you can do is yell, right? In politics, you know, you say you can, you know, vote with your feet, right? If you really, really don't like something, you can, you can move. The great thing about open source is you can always vote with your feet. You can always take the source code and do what you like with it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that argument at all. Um, I certainly completely respect the core developers. You know, having worked on it for a long time and just seeing how much insanely detailed work, and how insanely careful you have to be, I understand how much pressure there is to not get anything, any one little teeny tiny thing wrong that could bring down the whole network. And I'm frankly a little surprised because one of the reasons why I think we need more diversity is to relieve some of that pressure on the core developers, right? If we were running 11 different versions of the software on the network, then it wouldn't matter so much if one of them had a bug, right? The 10 11ths of the network would continue working just fine, probably. So again, you know, I think, I think change is hard and evolving to where we do have diversity and multiple implementations will be better for everybody in the long run. I know you probably didn't think of the name, but do you have any insight or can you tell us more about why call it Bitcoin Classic? Like, is there something behind that that I'm not getting? Is, is it to imply that now Bitcoin, the one that everybody's using right now, has gotten away from its classic roots and you want to get back to them? Or is it uh, just to emphasize that the only change really is the block limit in what Bitcoin Classic is proposing? Yeah, I did not choose the name, but I think the reasoning was exactly that that if you read what Satoshi said, I think, you know, his like second or third post to the Cypherpunks mailing list way back when he launched Bitcoin was about scaling and how scaling can can happen and how scaling will not be an issue. And part of the classic name is just to get back to that original vision of, you know, we can scale up in this very simple way. Uh, Satoshi talked about it. Um, that was the plan. When I got involved in Bitcoin, there was no protocol limit on the block size. There was a 32 megabyte limit on a network message size, but there was no consensus level limit on how big blocks could be. When I got started with Bitcoin, that was the vision. And I still think that that's the right vision is to, to not put arbitrary limits on it. And I think that informs the classic name is to get back to that classic idea of Let's not unnecessarily limit things. Hey folks, the magic word for today's episode is CRAB. That's C-R-A-B. CRAB. You've got until the 21st of February to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. The song we're listening to right now is one of my most recent, and it's called Living the Dream. I'll be releasing it on my next collection of music towards the middle or end of March, but the full 5-minute mix is available right now to those with producer tokens. Head over to mindtomatter.org for information on how to support my habit and get early access to everything I create, as well as becoming one of the first users of real access tokens. The end of this song is pretty much my favorite part, I love this breakdown. So let's listen to the last little bit and then jump right back in with Gavin and the other hosts. Thanks for listening.
Gavin, do you think there's anything that Core could do differently that would make you be persuaded to work with uh, Core again and not push for a hard fork first? Do you think there's an opportunity for compromise here? Or is it it's simply a matter that, that the market will decide separately from these two teams? The market will decide. I mean, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road with Bitcoin is what software do people decide to run. The root of my issue with Core is that I just think they're not listening to their customers. <laughs> I don't think they've been listening to the miners and I don't think they've been listening to you know, the people who do the bulk of the transactions on the network. I think it's turned into developers developing for developers in a way, which is it's kind of the way typical open source software projects work, right? You kind of scratch your own itch is the phrase. I'm not sure there's anything anybody could have done not to have core evolve that way. That's just kind of the way the project evolved. It was, you know, volunteer developers who had some spare time deciding this is a really interesting project. Uh, maybe it meets my politics or my philosophy, or I'm just curious about the technology, and so I'll donate some time to working on it. We've long said that if companies aren't happy with, the, with what Core is doing, then they should either get developers involved in Core, or they should start their own projects. And I think companies have not been happy with the direction Core has been going and haven't been happy with the priorities that Core is set as expressed by kind of the code that they're producing. And so that's, that's what's happening now. And I think that's okay. And I think that's healthy. I mean, you ask about contributing towards Core. Like I said, I'm, I'm happy to contribute to lots of different projects. Um, I think my contributions will wax and wane based on, you know, am I busy researching some interesting new area of computer science that catches my eye? Or am I done researching and decide I actually want to write some code that people might actually decide to, to use? And so you know, I, I expect that to be true going forward. Back in September, I visited uh, CoinScrum in London, which is the, the very large international local uh, meetup group, the, one of the largest in the world. And one of the things they gave me was a poster and a t-shirt that has you, Gavin, in the Satoshi garb you wore at one of these conferences dressed up as Uncle Sam, pointing towards the viewer and saying, I want you for Bitcoin Core. And now this has become the most ironic t-shirt I own. <laughs> I'm wearing it right now as we're doing this interview. <laughs> wow, that's funny. That's well, and, and how quickly I, I think it's change. natural as, as Bitcoin gets bigger, right? So, you know, when I joined the project, it was me and Satoshi contributing code, basically. You know, that got bigger over time. We got more developers. But, you know, at some point, the project gets too big and unwieldy and, and it splits. And I, I think that's natural. And I think that was going to happen no matter what I did. It's painful, right? It's, it's a, change is always painful. And it's painful to go from this cool, clubby handful of developers who all get along and who all have very clear vision for what needs to be done over the next six months to a much larger set of developers and some of those original developers, you know, we just have different visions for what should happen over the next six months and what the, what the priorities ought to be. I don't think anybody is evil. I don't think, I don't subscribe to any of the conspiracy theories. I am not working for the NSA despite rumors. 
Well, that's exactly what an NSA operative would say. <laughs> it is exactly what an NSA operative totally would say. You're right. Um, Actually, I wanted to back you up on that because <laughs> what I was thinking as I was hearing you just talk about this was the last time you were on our show, maybe a year ago, something like that. I remember you were you were talking about increasing the block size to 20 megabytes and how you thought that was the best way to go. But you said that you were really like open minded and just thought like something needed to be done, essentially. And now you've essentially proven that's that is true, like that you really were open minded to a different solution that wasn't exactly what you started out wanting. And you kind of went in that direction. So I just wanted to point out follow up on that interview that we did with you a while ago. I want to correct you, right? This is a block limit we're talking about. It's not the actual block size. Miners are going to create blocks that are reasonable size. They just are. <laughs> They're not going to create blocks that are that are too big for them. And so they they really do control the block size. They may not know it, but they do. And so, you know, the limits are just kind of safety rails just to prevent some crazy person who decides to spend a bunch of money creating a block that takes a very long time to validate from maybe clogging up the network. Although with validation of mining, even that probably wouldn't have any effect whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Because I tend to think I was tending to think of it as, okay, if a limit is in place, it's always going to meet the limit. But that's not necessarily the case. No, it's not. And, you know, Bitcoin survived for years with a one megabyte block limit when blocks were empty, basically, right? We didn't actually start seeing significant transaction mm -hmm. volume for quite a while. In my heart of hearts, I think we could eliminate the limits and everything would work out just fine. <laughs> because I think Bitcoin really is resilient and I think the incentives are there for people to make sure it doesn't break. Reasonable people could disagree about that, and, and I'm happy to compromise and have been, as you said, willing to compromise all along. And, and it's been really unfortunate that it's turned into a kind of philosophical debate with people taking sides. How do you not get frustrated about that, Gavin? You know, or have you ever felt burned out? Have you ever felt like maybe like some of that frustration that Mike Hearn was expressing in his public letter just recently? You notice I didn't go to the Hong Kong conference, schlepping all the way across the world for Christmas. Just, you know, I was frustrated and burned out and wasn't going to do that, right? Even though I, I thought probably it would, it would be good to do that. And, you know, maybe the Chinese miners would, would be happier with me if I had gone there and done that and shown my face and shaken hands and all of those nice things. So yeah, obviously I feel the burnout and the frustration. I think all of the developers are feeling burnout and frustration and that's not helping the debate. And I really hope that we can find a better process so we don't get so much burnout and frustration and rancor and debate because there are other issues we're going to have to tackle. In fact, this issue we're going to have to tackle, <laughs> right? A two megabyte block size bump is not the long-term solution. So hopefully we can come up with a much better process for let's agree that we're going to do a hard fork. Let's come to some reasonable process so we can agree about what's going to be in that hard fork and what's not going to be in that hard fork. And then we can all work productively together again. Do you have any ideas about what that process might look like? Well, I think it's important to try to get agreement on the process. I don't really care what the process is, but I would say it needs to have a nice time frame. It needs to have you know, clear decision points, clear ways of making decisions so that debates don't turn into 
you know, unproductive, time-sucking wastes where the same points are brought up over and over and over again. The best system I've seen for doing this is actually probably the IETF standards process, which, you know, is the way all the internet protocols work with this process. And, and so, you know, something like an IETF standards process, the sticky bit with doing something like the IETF is every IETF working group has a chairman. And one of the powers of the chairman is to decide when an issue has been talked about long enough or when an issue is resolved and to say, all right, we've talked about that. Everybody said their piece. Consensus seems to be that this tiny little piece has been addressed. Let's move on. And I don't know how we can decide on kind of how to make those types of decisions. Uh, I I think of it as a um, kind of a conversation ratchet, right? So to make progress, you need people to come together, argue about something, like maybe is validationless mining okay or not, right? That's an argument you could have. But then at some point, you need to like settle that debate and say, either it is or it isn't. If it is, okay, fine. Let's go on to the next issue and discuss that and not bring up validationless mining again, because we already decided that it's okay, right? And it's the way things can work and that's fine. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of, in the block size debate, if you assume that validationless mining is okay, then a whole bunch of technical issues kind of go away. They're not an issue anymore. Like the issue of somebody creating a huge, expensive to validate block, it's not really such an issue anymore, at least not below some certain rational, reasonable size. And so that's the kind of process that I'm, I'm hoping that we could come to agreement on that that's how we're going to proceed. But again, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a process for agreeing on a process. <laughs> so, but, but hopefully, you know, we can get people thinking a little bit bigger picture and get people thinking about, you know, how, how do we want to evolve this in the future so that we can minimize the amount of unnecessary conflict. You know, Gavin, one of the things that struck me in this whole debate is that there's a really big need to respect the process, especially if you're winning or if you have the power to ignore the process. And a lot of people got quite upset because of some things that were done in various uh, forms that resembled censorship or were censorship, and people kind of abusing the process in this debate. And I think that rankled a lot of people, it, it upset a lot of people, and it changed the tone of debate to the point where it became much more personal and ugly. In that whole situation, though, it seems that some people have managed to keep focused, avoid personal attacks for the most part. I think you've done a good job of that and, and others. And, and some people didn't handle that very well. I want to ask you what your thoughts are on respecting the process, but also specifically when Mike Hearn published in a very public way, had a, had a big rage quit. This created a lot of media articles about how Bitcoin was dead, a failed experiment. I want to ask your opinion, regardless of the personal feelings and all of the other nastiness that has happened, do you agree with some of the points that Mike brought up in his, in his memo, do you think there has been a monumental failure of Bitcoin? I agree with some of Mike's points. Some of them I don't agree with, and I don't like the way Mike went about it. So I think it was a whiny rage quit. <laughs> so the overall conclusion that Bitcoin is a failed experiment, you disagree with that? 
Well, that's the, what, 89th time or something that Bitcoin has been declared a failed experiment. I tend to take the long-term view with Bitcoin, which I think frustrates people. I tend to take the 20-year view of, you know, technologies take decades to catch on and really become really big mainstream things. And so that's the perspective I, I take on things. I think Mike takes a shorter perspective. I think there are a lot of speculators in the Bitcoin world that don't look more than 10 minutes out <laughs> on what the price of Bitcoin is doing. So I don't think it's a failed experiment. I think the future is actually pretty bright for Bitcoin. If you look at the, the roadmap that Core came out with, I agree with everything on the roadmap more than a year out. And, and I think the technical roadmap is really, really bright. And I think that this disagreement is just, it's, it's A, a disagreement about governance and, you know, how do we make these kinds of decisions? And B, it's a disagreement about, you know, how urgent is the problem right now that, that we get fixed? And I mean, worst case scenario is, is, you know, we get stuck at one megabyte and then clever engineers find workarounds. The hit to Bitcoin of that, I think, is probably on about the same level as kind of Mount Gox collapsing. That's the way I think of it, right? I think, I think Mount Gox collapsing put us back a couple of years. And I think getting stuck at one megabyte for a couple of years while other solutions are found will have a similar kind of hit, right? You know, transactions will back up. People will say Bitcoin's dead because it can't scale. And then clever engineers will find some workaround, whether that's extension blocks or side chains or lightning network, or I don't know what, and it'll get worked around eventually. And maybe it'll be segregated witness. It would be nice to avoid that kind of two years of uncertainty setback. And then that's the reason I'm pushing so hard on this is because, you know, the smoother we can make the growth, the more reliable people will think Bitcoin is. So that, that's my perspective on things. And again, you know, I'm sure if you talk to, to folks on the other side, they would say, I'm the problem. <laughs> Everything would be fine if I just shut up and went home. I don't actually think that's true. And, and, and I think one of the things Mike said is, you know, if, if he and I weren't pushing XT, it would be other people. These companies that are putting tens of thousands of transactions on the blockchain every day have a real problem right now and that the transactions are getting increasingly unreliable. And that's a problem for them. It's a problem for their customers. And it is starting to hurt the growth of Bitcoin. I've asked people on the core development side to make public statements denouncing some of the censorship that has happened, as well as some of the extreme positions and personal attacks that have happened. People have said some very nasty things about you and other participants in this project. And on the other side, people have said some very nasty things about core developers and Blockstream and, and the various parties that, that agree with them. Now, you can't control what other people say about you, but you have an enormous amount of influence among the people who support the classic position. So I'm going to give you an, an opportunity to say something to the people who support classic out what is appropriate and what is not appropriate in criticizing core developers. I've asked them to do the same. I think it would be great to remove some of the personal attacks here. And I read all kinds of nastiness on RBTC about core developers, just as I read all kinds of nastiness on our Bitcoin about you. What would you say to people who follow Classic and follow your lead and, and like what you're saying about how core is being treated? I would say stop with the personal attacks, stop with the conspiracy theories. 
I don't know of any core developers who are evil or who have any anything but the best kind of interests at heart. Everybody wants to see Bitcoin succeed. And I have no no doubt that you know the people I worked with for years as part of Bitcoin Core are pure of heart. We just have a disagreement about priorities, risks, and benefits. It's really sad that there have been so much personal attacks on both sides. And, and stop it. Don't do it. You're hurting Bitcoin. <laughs> it does nobody any good if you drive great developers away. That's just not productive on either side. Thanks for listening to episode 282 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Gavin, Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and MindsToMatter.org. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.